Welcome to Creep Shows, where we discuss films that are just generally discomforting. I'm Ian. And I'm Madeline. And today we are talking about The Fly. Yes, so this movie was released in 1986. It was a remake of a 1958 film. It was directed and written by David Cronenberg. The movie has an estimated budget of $9 million and made about $60 million at the box office. So... For those of you that have not seen this movie, oh, also, I always forget this at the beginning, um, we had to purchase this movie for rent through the PlayStation Store, but it Mm -hmm. is available to stream through Stars if you have that streaming service, which we do not. (laughs) No, we don't. No. Um, So because this movie was a little bit less inaccessible, or less accessible, I should say, um, than some of the other movies we've watched. I'm just going to go through the story a bit. I may have a bit too lengthy of a summary, but whatever. Um, Ian, if there's anything I leave out or you have any interjections, feel free to chime in. Otherwise, I'm going to walk you through this movie real quick. All right. Take me through it. Tell me a story, Madeline. All right. So the movie opens on Seth Brundle, who is played by Jeff Goldblum, and Veronica Quaff, played by Gina Davis, meeting at a party. Seth immediately begins telling Veronica about an experiment he is working on that will change the world and invites her to his lab. Veronica agrees to follow him to a second location, which is her first mistake, and she drives them to his lab. Seth shows her his big experiment by taking one of Veronica's stockings and successfully teleporting it through his telepods. Veronica is amazed, and Seth tells her he has only successfully teleported non-living things up to this point. And at this point, Seth discovers Veronica has been recording their entire conversation. He asks Veronica to delete the recording, and she reveals that she is a journalist. So he asks her not to share the story, but she refuses to delete it. The next day, we see Veronica playing the recording for her editor, Stathis Barans, but he dismisses Seth as being a con man. Seth then takes Veronica out to lunch, where he asks her not to publish his story yet and instead come work with him and record the story of him perfecting his experiment. We then discover Veronica and Stathis have a romantic history because she comes home to him in her shower. She asks him how he got in, and he says he still has a key to her apartment. She asks him to give it back, and he says he's going to hold on to it for old time's sake. And she just accepts that, which, in my opinion, is her second mistake, um, because we repeatedly see him breaking into her apartment then. Um, Not a good look, man. Not a good look. Anyway, (laughs) next we have an experiment montage. So first experiment we see is Seth attempts to teleport a baboon, and it gets pretty gross. Um, The baboon gets turned inside out. Yuck. Then we see Seth cut a steak in half, teleport one part of it, and then have Veronica taste both samples after he cooks them. She says the teleported half tastes synthetic, which makes Seth realize this means the computer is merely giving its interpretation of a steak and is only translating the information rather than reproducing it. This is where... It kind of lost me a bit. So Mm -hmm. the missing link in the translation is a computer having a craving for the flesh. His words, not mine. So now he must teach the computer to crave flesh, which takes a whole 
30 seconds for him to figure out. <laughs> and he successfully teleports another baboon. And this time, it doesn't get turned inside out. It lives. So it's great. Seth is super excited and ready to publish his work, but Veronica advises him not to rush it. Veronica then goes to see Stathis and tell him not to go publish the story yet, but agrees to keep him informed. While Veronica is out, Seth gets jealous and assumes that she's going to meet with her ex-lover. And so he decides to teleport himself. Um, what could possibly go wrong here? As the pod Seth is in is closing, a fly sneaks in, and we don't see it come out on the other side, and Seth doesn't notice the fly get in either. When Veronica comes back, Seth lets her know he teleported, and they go to bed. Next morning, he has the strength and acrobatic talent of a circus soleil performer <laughs> overnight, and we see him start to intake a ridiculous amount of sugar. We then cut to Veronica and Seth wrapping up a lengthy sex session when Veronica notices some odd-looking hairs growing out of Seth's back and she gets a sample of one. Seth then tries to force Veronica to teleport, but she says she is scared because she thinks something went wrong when Seth teleported, so he loses his shit on her and kicks her out. Seth then goes to a bar and brings home a woman named Tawny, who he sleeps with. Seth then tries to force Tawny to teleport, but Veronica intervenes at the last second. Veronica tells Seth she had the hair sample tested and it came back with weird results, almost like an inhuman insect-like specimen. Veronica tells Seth that she thinks he is sick and he flips his shit on her again, kicks her out again, and tells her never to come back. And as soon as she leaves, his fingernails start peeling off. Oh, that scene was awesome. And pus squirts out of his fingers. It is at this point Seth discovers he spliced his genetic code with a fly. All right, you still following? Because we're wrapping it up now. We're, we're at the climax. So we fast forward about a month, and Seth asks Veronica to come visit him. He's in really, really rough shape. We see him try to eat in front of her and immediately regurgitate the food because that's how flies eat. Ew. Uh, she visits him again, and he is climbing on the walls and ceiling, and Seth now believes he was stricken by this disease for a purpose. Veronica then finds out she is pregnant and dreams about giving birth to a maggot. It's horrifying, and we'll talk about it more, I'm sure. We then cut back to Seth, trying to give his computer a voice command, but he is beyond the point of recognition. Even his voice isn't recognized by his computer anymore, and all of his teeth fall out. <laughs> It's one of my worst nightmares. Veronica then sees Seth one more time to try and tell him that she is pregnant, but she is so horrified by his appearance that she can't do it, and so she goes back outside to tell Stathis to take her to get an abortion. Seth overhears this and follows them to the hospital. As Veronica is about to get on the operating table, Seth comes crashing in like a classic B-horror movie and snatches Veronica. For Seth's final experiment, he is going to combine himself, Veronica, and their unborn child into what I can only assume is a superfly human. He does this by having them start in separate pods that will all teleport to the same location. Stathis bursts in to save the day, but Seth is kind of a dick and spits fly acid on his hand and foot, disintegrating them both. 
Seth then forces Veronica into her pod, and at the last second, as he's closing the door on his own, Stathis is able to shoot the wires that are connecting Veronica's pod to the others, which results in Seth being transported by himself and coming out disfigured beyond repair. Veronica points a shotgun at Seth, but cannot bring herself to pull the trigger. And in Seth's final act, he grabs the barrel of the shotgun and puts it to his head, begging Veronica to end his life. Veronica is hysterical, but ultimately pulls the trigger, killing him. And that is where the movie ends. Did I miss anything? Sounded good to me. I'm pretty sure you got every shot in there. Thank you. <laughs> I tried to try to be thorough. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was, that was pretty good. I, I don't think you missed a single beat. Thank there you. was a lot that happened in this movie, and yeah. like the each individual in each individual piece, in my opinion, is more important than the sum of its its whole of of its parts. So, I, I think we'll get into that a little bit. But I mean, do you have anything else you want to add in there? Any other quick thoughts and? interesting bits before i get into my stuff um no we can save that for our own thoughts and interpretations later on i'll let you get into your production information so we kind of have to change up the format a little bit each week depending on the films that we're covering because each one you know this one didn't have necessarily those those horror stories of what happened on set that madeline's really been driving home here in the past yeah nothing crazy happened with this one uh, other than it launching jeff goldblum and gina davis's careers and that's not to say that it's not noteworthy in other regards i mean one of the major things about this film that is recognizable in just our pop culture is the fact that the makeup effects won uh, an award uh, what was it, uh, an Oscar? Yeah, I won the Academy Award. An the Academy makeup Award. designer yeah. did. Also, um, in the ending credits, the makeup designer is the first uh, crew member who is credited on this movie, which oh, yeah. is really cool. Well, when you look into all of the stuff that went into making these prosthetics and the whole the whole process of converting Jeff Goldblum in his prime into this hideous, disfigured, fly-like creature, it's all really fascinating stuff. Uh, and so I found a, a fair bit of information on that. It, it kind of breaks down the the concept of what they had to do is relatively simple, but the execution of it is where all of the mastery and finesse really comes into play here. Uh, and so some of the things that I found about the makeup and the special effects are kind of what we're going to go over here now. So the makeup was done by Chris Wallace, Inc., uh, over the course of about three months is what it said in, in various sources that I found. Now, Chris Wallace was a special effects and makeup uh, artist most known before this for doing Gremlins, uh, where he made all of the animatronic Gremlins when they in that film, if you're familiar with it, these cute little furry creatures transform into these hideous little monsters that are known as Gremlins. They kind of and so he designed of all of those creatures. That's really uh, cool. And all their animatronics and stuff. And that was a huge, huge film. So that's probably where you'd know his work best from. And the aesthetic is largely the same here between the gremlins and the character known as Brundlefly. Uh, basically what Jeff Goldblum becomes when he fuses his DNA with that of a fly. Um, and so I found it kind of fascinating in learning about their process where all accounts of that say that because of the way that the the creature sort of evolves over time, they actually had to work backwards. 
So they said that there were uh, seven or eight iterations, depending on the source that you find, with one of them cut from the final film. Uh, But there were seven iterations of the transformation of Seth Brundle into Brundle Fly. And they started at the very end with the, the creature that you see in the climactic sequence at the end after he's fully fly formed. Uh, and basically they had to start from there because that was an animatronic that they had to put together because the, the proportions, I mean, anybody who's actually watched the film, you can see that the, the proportions are not those of a human. There's no way that you could fit a human body into that character that you see in the final couple sequences of the film. So they had to make it animatronic just because of the limitations of physiology. And then they worked their way backwards from there going, okay, how can we morph this back down step by step into Jeff Goldblum and make this all fit? Um, So, yeah, they had in total about seven different steps of this transformation of the character of Seth Brundle. And just each time it's increasing in the amount of kind of like grossness and weird detail. Like I'm sure watching the film as Madeline, I know you saw we see at first whenever he's you know spliced his dna and he's starting to change into this fly man uh his skin starts to get a little looks kind of bubbly it looks kind of ugly yeah right i said like bubbly it, oh, but bubbly. Also okay kind of. sorry uh <laughs> so it looks a little bubbly and strange and that slowly progresses to you know the his fingers getting weird and the hairs in his back are growing out and eventually we get He's just got this weird sort of pinkish, bubbly red skin that kind of takes over his body. Uh, You see his teeth fall out. And all of these are are different iterations of the makeup that they had to create for the film. And so that's where a lot of like the technical interest comes in, because you got to imagine the amount of man hours spent taking all of these bits of prosthetic and not only making them and painting them effectively to where they look good, but applying them to the actor. Uh, There are reports from Jeff Goldblum saying that he would sit there in what is essentially a dentist's chair for up to five hours before some shoots and get this makeup applied to him. And apparently at the time, him and Gina Davis were actually dating. Yeah, uh, I, I saw some that. of the reports of that. And so there were there were some instances of where Gina Davis would be sitting there with him. And it was noted that she would sing to him or just like talk to him in general or, or some way try and keep him entertained for this long, arduous process of getting this intense makeup and prosthetics applied to him. So it's interesting to see the kind of like dedication that an actor has to put in on top of the fact that you've got a team of tens or dozens of people working on the ma- the uh, makeup that he's actually having to wear. So it's just crazy to see all of that effort having to be put in. Yeah. Can I chime in with something real quick here that pertains to this? No, you're not allowed. Oh, okay. I'm kidding, go. Um, no, I just read that David Cronenberg said that they had a hard time finding an actor to play Seth Brundle because a lot of actors were concerned that makeup would be an inhibitor to their acting or their facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jeff Goldblum was one of the only people that just welcomed that challenge and was like, yeah, put prosthetics all over me. I'll make it work. <laughs> of course, Goldblum yeah, would be Yeah, and he that. <laughs> actually had to work with a speech therapist throughout the production process to learn how to speak with different, um, just various prosthetic teeth that 
they built for him. Yeah, I guess that would make sense because he would have had to have worn a prosthetic when he was, uh, for the scenes where all of his teeth fell out, at least. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that. Yeah, okay. That's pretty crazy. So, the uh, one of the other interesting things about kind of the, the prop work that was done here was you actually mentioned this a bit in your synopsis uh, the scenes where he's eating or just in general when he's vomiting oh uh, yeah I'm sure so you love gross. that <laughs> but what I found was that the vomit that they made because you see it in uh, a scene that I'm sure has been made into a gift by now uh, of just Jeff Goldblum like kind of early transformation where he's still mostly Brundle as opposed to fly uh, you see him in like the first time when Ronnie comes into his apartment when he's mid transformation and he's trying to tell her about how he eats and he, you see him lift up a box of donuts and he just vomits all over them. And he goes, oh, that's gross, isn't it? Or something like that. And he's like, that's disgusting. And so he, may, he acknowledges the fact that it's really gross for him to have to throw up on his food uh, in order to eat it. And I found that to be really funny. Um, but we actually found that that vomit was made of natural ingredients, obviously, because he has to put it in his mouth. They're not going to make it out of something synthetic. So they made his vomit out of honey, flour, and food coloring. Interesting. And I thought that was pretty interesting. But you'll actually see in some other shots, uh, a lot of the later shots, really, where the brundle fly is just exceptionally wet. Like, he always looks gooey. Um I found out that there's something that's commonly used in prop making called methyl cellulose, where it's basically just like a, a synthetic sort of powder that you mix with water and it makes this goopy slime. And so that was one of the interesting distinctions that I found. Like that was one of the things that I found interesting uh, was that there was a different sort of goop that they used for Goldblum to spit out versus what they covered the prosthetics in. So, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Cool. That makes sense, though. I mean, I don't know what um, what was it that the prosthetics were covered in again? What was that called? It's called methyl cellulose. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if that would be safe to put in your mouth. I find it pretty unlikely, judging by the fact that they didn't. Yeah. So <laughs> some of the other things that I found really interesting were kind of aside from the makeup, but just the general process of the film production. Um, you mentioned in your plot synopsis again of the telepods, these two teleport sort of locations for, you know, you start on one side and end up on the other, whatever. That's a pretty common concept in this film, right? So the telepods, I found their design to be a little bit interesting watching the film the first time around, because when you look at them, they look kind of like a pair, but they've got these weird like little ridges all along the outside. And I remember thinking, man, that looks like cooling fins on like a, a, an engine or something like a heat sink of some sort. And what's really funny is I found that David Cronenberg, the director of the film, is actually a motorsport enthusiast. And he was inspired to design those, have those telepods designed to look like a Ducati motorcycle's engine cylinder heads. So basically the part that houses the pistons, uh, that's what those are designed to look like. And it makes perfect sense because of those fins. That's exactly what I was thinking is they're basically little heat sinks to help dissipate any heat the engine's making. So I found that to be pretty cool. On top of that, like with his motorsport enthusiasm, 
it's noted that he was inspired to name the character Brundle after a off of after 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 a Formula One racer named Martin Brundle. So that's kind of cool. Just a weird little nod there. What does that mean, Formula One racer? It's just a, a type of racing class. Like there in the U.S., there's NASCAR, which is drive 200 miles an hour and turn left. Yeah. Uh, Formula One is an open wheel sort of racing format where it's these twisty, turny, windy tracks, um, but it's much faster and it's it's a different style of racing okay. altogether. But it's very European, very fast and very technical. So Formula One is no joke. It's basically the pinnacle of the racing world in many people's opinions. Oh, OK. Well, yeah, I'm stupid for not knowing what that you're was. Stupid. <laughs> it's just something you're not into. So that makes sense. That's fine. Um, so that was kind of the, the interesting inspiration there. Some other things that I found were that during filming scenes with the baboon that gets teleported in between the pods and turned inside out, they, they didn't get two baboons. It's still the same one. Um, oh, I was really worried about that. <laughs> right. They actually turned a baboon inside out with teleportation technology. I'm amazed PETA wasn't down it's their fantastic. <laughs> Well, during scenes with that baboon, it turns out that the baboon became inexplicably attracted to the script supervisor, uh, Jillian Richardson. Uh, and I guess from some accounts, it was said that the baboon would just harass her and try and get on her all the time. And so eventually, and this is presumed to be because of his height, because Jeff Goldblum's a pretty tall guy. Uh, the baboon ended up recognizing him as the alpha male in the studio. Oh, that's funny. And basically developed this sort of subservient relationship with him. And so you see, actually, and I found this really surprising in the film, you see a scene where after he teleports the baboon between the two uh, telepods, and he's checking like, hey, buddy, are you okay? Is everything fine? Are you still normal? <laughs> the baboon jumps up in his arms. And I was wondering, like, how did they manage to train a baboon to do that? But this makes it make a lot more sense, as you can see that Jeff Goldblum was just like, hey, get in my arms. <laughs> Baboon's like, all right, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then we never see the baboon again, and I just really want to know what Seth Brundle did with that baboon. I bet he ate it or something. That's what was I was the Brundle honestly thinking. Ugh. Who knows? Maybe it's in the cut, like, deleted scenes or something like that. So early on in his transformation, we see Seth Brundle go to a bar as kind of a way to flaunt his newfound confidence and cockiness that he's gotten from the, the initial parts of this transformation. Well, and also because he thinks Veronica was out banging Stathis. <laughs> yeah. Well, at that scene, we see him start arm wrestling with some guy. Uh, and it turns out, just a, a fun little aside, that the person playing the guy arm wrestling him was actually a Canadian boxer named George Chivalo. Oh, I had this fact, too. Yeah. So it turns out that he fought Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, two very prolific boxers from you know the late mid to late 20th century. And I thought that, that was pretty interesting, that they got some guy that happened to just know these people and have gone up against them. You don't really expect that. Yeah. Um, I also think I read that he was never not off his feet um, during his career as a boxer. Wow. Which leads me to believe that he defeated both Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. 
Maybe. You never know. I mean, in boxing, with the way that they score things, it's possible mm. to still be able to win without getting knocked down. Gotcha. Or like lose without getting knocked down, I guess, is more relevant okay. here. So, could be. Who knows? I didn't actually look up the guy's history. I just found that to be a fun little fact. So, if there's anybody out there that knows about George Chavallo, the Canadian boxer. <laughs> we have any please, boxing fans out yeah, there. let us know. Could be interesting. Um Unlike the the physical sort of prowess side of things, again, for those early sequences when he was flaunting his newfound strength, there's a scene with him doing gymnastics on just a bar in his apartment. And, of course, because no one expects Jeff Goldblum to be able to do these sort of stunts and movements himself, they had stand-ins who were actual gymnasts that had to come on set and do these routines. And when you watch the sequence, it's very impressive that anybody can move like that. Props to whoever actually stood in for the gold loom on those scenes. Damn. But what you see is just a lengthy sequence of someone doing various flips and twirls all around a bar. Uh, They run on the roof, the ceiling of the apartment at one point. And I found that kind of weird just because there was like a specifically designed little rectangle on the ceiling. Where you can see it's just like, okay, walk here (laughs) when you're upside down in the air like a normal person would totally be expected to do. (laughs) That was pretty interesting. But so it turns out that because the way that they trained uh, these gymnasts were expecting to do this, you know, once or twice, maybe uh, you can imagine the amount of strength that it takes, just total body strength to be able to do those kinds of movements. But it turns out that just because of the way that filmmaking goes, you got to do things multiple times, multiple takes if it's not perfect, if they want different lighting, just from a different angle, anything like that. So these athletes had to do this same routine over and over again. And it got to a point where they had taken, they had done so many takes where they had to just stop. They couldn't go on anymore because of how physically demanding the movements were. And it's just kind of nuts that when you think about it, someone that can do these kinds of movements, having to do them over and over and over again to the point where they just can't go on anymore. And that's how hard this film pushed some people. found that pretty interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I'm sorry, I kind of cut you off on the boxer. Um, did you t- actually talk about how that scene plays out? So the way that that scene plays out with the boxer Basically, it ends up that Brundle breaks his hand. And that was actually, it's interesting that you bring that up. That was actually one of the things that I found the uh, the people doing the special effects and prop work for the film had issue with. Um, they had originally wanted to do something much more complicated, but ended up going with, basically, they, they had to glue this like metal rod that was bent at a at kind of an angle. They had to glue this rod to the actor's palm, this, the boxer, actually. They had to glue a rod to his palm, and then when he bent his hand back at the wrist, the rod just protruded out, and it made it look like this bone was broken and sticking out of his hand. Super gross, but a super good effect when you look at it in the, in the final film. Like you could tell that the skin is synthetic, and that's fine. But other than that, like functionally and mechanically, it was just a really good effect. Uh, but it's it's interesting to see how simple they did that. You know, it's essentially the equivalent to taking a piece of tape and taping a pencil to your palm and then just bending your wrist back and saying, look, I broke my bone. Kind of cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, do you have anything else on the production side of this film? 
the only other interesting thing that I was really able to find was in regards to Ronnie's dream sequence, where she's going to get her baby delivered. And there's a sequence where she's getting the child delivered and she has to go to a gynecologist. And who is it, Madeline, that we found plays the gynecologist in those sequences? David Cronenberg. Exactly. (laughs) And why is that? Because Gina Davis was already comfortable with him and didn't want a random extra up in her hoo-ha. Wait. Now tell me, from your perspective as a female, you don't want random people up in your hoo-ha? Um, normally, no. I prefer to um, know and have a consensual relationship with the people I allow in that area. In your hoo-ha. I just want to pay, make a, a note of the fact that you chose to call it a hoo-ha. <laughs> all right. That's pretty much all I've got for that bit. Um, what have you got next for us? All right. So I'm going to just talk a little bit here about the short story that this film was based on, as well as the original 1958 version of this film, because the story varies pretty significantly Um, from what we see in this movie. So this movie, The Fly, is loosely based on George Langland's 1957 short story of the same name. He was a French author. I say was. He may still be alive. I didn't actually look. Um, This short story was... I don't know if he's dead. You can't say rip, (laughs) Ian. Rip, Uh, even if you're alive. Oof. Um, so the story was first published in Playboy magazine Whoa. of all places in Racy. June of 1957, because we know that the men reading Playboy are looking for some, you know, just really <laughs> philosophical, something to contemplate as you stare yeah. at interesting pictures. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like some science with my tits. Um, <laughs> or sci-fi, I should say. So this short story tells the story of an eccentric scientist who, after an experiment gone wrong, turns into a fly hybrid creature. So the story follows a woman who calls up a man and tells him she murdered his brother, who was the scientist, and he needs to go to the police. The woman then is complicit with the investigation. She answers all questions except how and why she had to kill him. She then reveals in a letter to the scientist's brother that um, the scientist had made an amazing discovery that he called a disintegrator reintegrator. However, when he went through himself, a fly went through with him and he came out with a fly's head and arm. Um, I wasn't able to find in the little synopsis I read how she kills him, but she herself is unable to live with the events that happen, and she takes her own life with cyanide at the end of the story. That's pretty dark. Yeah, if you want to read the short story, it's actually available for free online. I found it earlier when I was doing my research, but I did not actually read it myself. That's a, a theme for this episode, huh? Hey. We'll get into that. <laughs> um, and then a year later, the short story was adapted into a movie called The Fly. And this movie centers around a scientist whose left arm and head becomes insectile. So the movie starts off with a scientist found dead with his head and arm crushed in a hydraulic press. His wife then confesses to the crime but refuses to provide a motive. Kind of similar as the short story. 
She then explains to the scientist brother that the scientist went through a transporter device at the same time as a fly, and he now has the head and left arm of a fly, while the fly now has his head and left arm. But he keeps his own mind. So the only way to turn the scientist back is to find the fly with his head. Unable to find this fly, though, he starts to think and become more like a fly and ultimately sets his own head under the hydraulic press, making his wife push the button and assist in his suicide, which we see again in the 1986 version of the fly. So this movie adaptation remained largely true to the story apart from changing the location from France to Canada and there was a happy ending for his wife that didn't involve her taking her own life. And this movie was very well received by the public. Um, it became a horror, horror classic of its own up until the remake came out. Hmm. Okay. The only thing that I know about that original film was what was mentioned in some of the the accounts of the prop making process for this one, the Goldblum one, uh, and that was basically reference to a scene where you see something from the fly's perspective in the the fifties version, and it's multifaceted, like it's just the same face uh, tiled like eight or twelve different times, kind of like how all bug eyes are these kind of multifaceted things. And that's how they portray it in film, where it's just like a, a thousand, like 10 octagons or something all connected to each other in a pattern. And so it was just the same thing tiled over and over again. Whereas, interestingly enough, um, David Cronenberg was at some point in his life, and unfortunately I didn't find more information on this, but he was at some point in his life an entomologist, <laughs> someone who studies bugs. And so he made a note in one of his uh, interviews somewhere, basically saying that, oh, you know, I found that to be a little hokey and unrealistic when they, they just retiled the same image dozens of times on the screen. Realistically, although these are these eyeballs are multifaceted like this and each thing takes in individual bits of information, it all compiles one whole picture still. So kind of a weird way to put it, but it makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got... 50 different lenses on an eyeball that's all still going to go to the same spot, you know, the ultimate focal point, whatever. So kind of cool. I found that interesting. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I found about this story um, that we see in all three iterations of the story, The Fly, um, is that it is as much a relationship drama and love story as it is sci-fi and horror um, because it does have just the generic elements and tones of a tragic love story. Makes sense. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. Um, that's all I have, though, on the works that inspired this movie. Um, I know you have a little bit, though, on an unrelated work that has influenced this movie. Yeah. Unrelated is a stretch. So I've mentioned a couple times on this podcast that I have a desire to read Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, which this film echoes so many of the themes in that work that it's crazy. Uh, I have to admit, I did start reading the book. I got about a quarter of the way through it, and I just couldn't finish it. Uh, mostly because when I read, it tends to be in bed, and I just kept falling asleep. <laughs> so admittedly, I didn't finish the whole thing. I got enough of it to kind of 
get an idea for the voice of the work and see how it kind of relates here. Um, but yeah, so admittedly, any comparisons that I make here, they're mostly going to be using the opinions of others that I've found online. But I do intend, hopefully, to one day finish that book because I found it very interesting. It's just very wordy. It's it's very much a block of text, at least the iteration that I've got from probably like the 60s because I took it from my stepdad's library a long time ago. Um, but so as far as it relates to the story of the fly, we've got some really interesting stuff here that I've found. There was actually an article that was written by David Cronenberg himself that goes into the relationship between the fly and the metamorphosis pretty in depth. Well, I can't really say in depth. It's like a 1500 word article or something like that, but at least giving some sort of insight, that's kind of cool. But I've found some interesting bits of information from a couple different sources, and I'll read them here to you here in quotes, because I found like that because I didn't actually finish the story myself, these people put into words the, the themes and tones between the two films that are noteworthy. So my first quote you can find on uh, KafkaDesk.org. <laughs> I know it's Boo, that is the worst pun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get it. Um, <laughs> so but bad. apparently it's a it's a website dedicated to Franz Kafka and all of his works. Wow, I which kind of guessed fun that. fact about Kafka that you can appreciate. He was from Prague. Oh, yeah. Czech Republic. Well, what is now the Czech Republic? Yeah. So, yeah. So this quote from the, the article I found on Kafka desk says, like Seth, Gregor, and that is the main character of the metamorphosis, progressively gets used to his new existence as an insect and loses all human bearings. Monstrosity is a degradation, a scarring stigma which isolates them from the rest of humankind. Seth and Gregor are now only decayed beings, monsters in flesh, bone, and soul. So that's one of the main themes that kind of resonates between these two works, is that it's a story of how this person goes from fully human to something other than human and them trying to reconcile the idea that they're no longer what they thought they were. And this is something that you see David Cronenberg talk about it in his own way in this article where he kind of explains what it is that he had in mind for adapting the story of the fly into what it became because he wanted it to reflect more of that, that same theme and that same tonality of the Kafka work. Um, but in a nutshell, basically he says, and this is a quote from his article. He says, this is the genius of the metamorphosis indeed, or excuse me, sorry, that was from a different one. Um, this is just explaining how the metamorphosis kind of plays into the tones and says this is the genius of the metamorphosis indeed all of kafka that it is not the situation that condemns us but our response to it that we are all always a part of the problem that the dehumanizing effect of modernity which is in the end kafka's great subject is cannot help but we a two but be a two-way street so basically what that's saying here is that even though, and, and this is a tone that's echoed in those two pros, in the two works, even though, you know, Seth Brundle is 
dealing with this issue of transforming into this fly human hybrid it's because of his own input like his own hubris and his own humanity we see that the whole the whole catalyst the event that leads him to getting in the teleporter with the fly is his jealousy of ronnie and we see him kind of take that humanity and succumb to the weakness of these human feelings of jealousy and you know this desire to want to prove something that he makes a mistake in you know his normally scientific mind where we see he's a very calculated man you know he's very smart he works with all the resources that he's got effectively and he achieves his goals all of that goes out the window in a moment of weakness because of these human emotions that he's feeling and so i think that's pretty interesting to say uh, as far as a little bit more comparison between those two works is concerned, I have another quote here, and this one is again from the Kafka Desk website. Uh, it's <laughs> I know I can't take you, that you seriously. That. It's not funny, okay? They worked hard. You uh, worked hard. Whoever came up with that website name did not. <laughs> so they say at the end, Gregor is an old invalid whose death will mark a new beginning, and who consumed with guilt will let himself die slowly. <laughs> As if to protect those we care for, we had to rein ourselves to let them go. The fly goes in the same direction, although in a much more dramatic way. Seth's final symbolic gesture is nothing less than a suggestion of euthanasia. The only way for the beast to protect its remaining limbs of humanity is to accept his monstrosity and let himself die. And so that's one of the themes that we see heavily, heavily exaggerated in both of these works is the the conflict between accepting your fate and just accepting the fact that they've been changed into this new being or clinging in onto the past um the the bit of the metamorphosis that i actually got to read there were a lot of instances where the main character gregor who in the metamorphosis rather than turning into a human fly hybrid he just wakes up one day and he's like a giant beetle basically and he gets a little confused by it. Um, and so some of the parallels that I see there are these concepts in the metamorphosis where Gregor hides himself away from his family so as to not be a burden on them. And in the comfort of his own secluded room where he's held, he is allowed to embrace his new bug features. You know, He can climb all over the walls and the ceilings and stuff like that. And there's a, a big symbol in that story of humanity. And what it is, it's a, a painting on the wall in Gregor's room of a, a woman, presumably a beautiful woman, wrapped in all sorts of furs and fancy clothing. And so throughout the early bits of the story, we see that Gregor's family, who's been kind of just shutting him away and letting him exist and just kind of ignoring the fact that they've got this giant beetle in their house now. Um, they start to move all the furniture out of his room so as to give him more freedom of movement in his new beetle form. Because, you know, he's always scuttling around and trying to get some sort of joy out of his new way of living. Uh, and so they start moving the furniture out of his room and that makes him question whether or not he wants to get rid of it because he's having this dilemma internally of whether or not he wants to accept the the fact that they're removing this furniture from his room as a way to enable the the new beetle like qualities of his existence 
But on the flip side, because they're removing this old furniture, these are things that were staples of his life as a human. And so he's got this internal dilemma of, okay, how can I justify getting rid of my old human identity? These things that say I was a human, I was here, I exist and just giving into my bug identity. And so that sparks a whole bunch of issues in that story. And it was shortly after that, that I kind of dropped off. Um, but it's, it's an interesting sort of dilemma to see. And we see that in the fly as well. There are times when Brundle is very much at peace with his transformation. You know, early on, we've got these sequences where he's doing gymnastics, where there's a line, there's a throwaway line with him and Gina Davis, where they've been having sex for so long that he's depleted of his fluids or something like that. And she just can't keep going. You know, this, this strength and this virility that comes from this transformation is enticing, but just like in the metamorphosis where Gregor, you know, has this internal conflict of removing his furniture, something that simple, we see the same sort of internal conflict with Seth Brundle in when he starts to wonder towards the end of the film like okay what am i doing here am i am i gonna be all fly or am i gonna be all man this whole concept of him battling with the idea of ronnie gina davis's character having a baby that could be his there's a line that he says in there at some point something along the lines of you know if you get rid of this baby you get rid of me the only human in me that's left or something like that right isn't mm-hmm. that what he says? Yeah, something along those lines. Something along those lines. Uh, and so that, that in a nutshell, is basically the same tone through the entirety of the metamorphosis. And so in the stuff that I found from Cronenberg's article, it was an article that he wrote in 2014 called The Beetle and the Fly. Obviously, at this point, you guys know that that's comparing the two sort of creatures together. And so I have a couple interesting quotes that I kind of want to wrap up my bit on and just kind of let people know what Cronenberg says in his own words as to how these stories relate. And one thing that I'm sure you guys will find is that he sounds like a very well-read man like this. The way that he writes, it sounds like he reads all day, every day. And I think that's really interesting because... One day I'd like to get there, but we're a long ways off. <laughs> Start with finishing Metamorphosis and we'll go from there. Yeah, we'll go from there. Don't worry. I'll, I'll get good habits eventually. Uh, okay. So I'll just start with reading a couple of quotes from David Cronenberg. So he says in his article, Langland's story, first published in Playboy magazine in 1957, falls firmly within the genre of science fiction with all the mechanics of reasoning of its scientist's hero carefully it fancifully constructed, uh, if fancifully constructed, sorry. Kafka's story, of course, is not science fiction. It does not provoke discussion regarding technology and the hubris of scientific investigation or the use of scientific research for military purposes. Without sci-fi trappings of any kind, the metamorphosis forces us to think in terms of analogy, of reflexive interpretation, though it is revealing that none of the characters in the story, including Gregor, ever does think that way. He goes on to say, my Brundlefly goes through moments of manic strength and power, convinced that he has combined the best components of human and insect to become a super being, 
refusing to see his personal evolution as anything but a victory, even as he begins to shed his human body parts, which he carefully stores in a medicine cabinet he calls the Brundle Museum of Natural History. Ew. Yeah, that was kind of a gross one. Says, there is none of this in the metamorphosis. The Samsa beetle is barely aware that he is a hybrid, though he makes small hybrid pleasures where he can find them, whether it's hanging from the ceiling or scuttling through the mess and dirt of his room, or listening to the music that his sister plays on her violin, the two being beetle pleasure and human pleasure, respectively. But the Samsa family, and I forgot to mention this, Samsa is Gregor's last name, that's his family. Uh, But the Samsa family is the Samsa beetle's context and his cage, and his subservience to the needs of his family, both before and after his transformation extends, ultimately to his realization that it would be more convenient for them if he just disappeared. It would be an expression of his love for them, in fact, and so he does just that by quietly dying. And so that's that's essentially the way that the metamorphosis story for at least Gregor Samsa ends, is because he's caused so much of an inconvenience for his family, he's changed their lives so much, he feels that rather than continue on living as this human beetle, whatever, he would literally rather die. And so he does. He stops eating, he stops sleeping, and he just dies. And it's found that in that story, his family starts to really flourish after his death. So one of the final things that I'll say about Cronenberg, and this is from, again, that same article, uh, his last little bit that he closed with. He said, when I went on my publicity tour for The Fly, I was often asked what insect I would want to be if I underwent an entomological transformation. My answers varied depending on my mood. Though I had a fondness for the dragonfly, not only for its spectacular flying, but also for the novelty of its ferocious underwater nymphal stage with its deadly, extendable, underslung jaw. I also thought that mating in the air might be pleasant. Would that be your soul, then, this dragonfly flying heavenward? came one response. Is that not really what you're looking for? No, not really, I said. I'd be just a simple dragonfly. And then if I managed to avoid being eaten by a bird or a frog, I would mate, and as summer ended, I would die. So that's that's kind of Cronenberg's take on just that sort of concept of change. He's got this very interesting sort of down-to-earth look where it says, okay, you know, if I found myself in this circumstance, I would, you know, accept where I'm at. There's There's no greater meaning beyond simply existing and man take that how you want to you can find it heavy or you can find it reassuring but it's something what type of bug would you be Ian um I don't know I didn't actually think of that hmm if I were to be recreated as a bug I would be a bee I don't have any questions about that. Yep, I don't doubt that at all. Thank you for your service, B. Much appreciated. Save the bees. Save the bees. Um, shit, I don't know. Maybe a ladybug. Oh, Just be pretty be so and then cute. die. Oh, you'd be such a pretty ladybug. <laughs> Maybe. 
All right, so that's pretty much all that I've got on Cronenberg's thoughts on how it relates to metamorphosis, the fly that is. Uh, I know that you found a little bit of interesting information on Cronenberg as well, right? Yeah, so I have some information on him, some themes we see throughout his films, and then just some of his own thoughts on making this film, telling this story. Um, and then we can get into our own thoughts, interpretations, and... Yeah. So David Cronenberg is a Canadian filmmaker and is known as one of the principal originators of the body horror genre. You don't say. Yeah. Many of his films explore often grotesque body transformation, infection technology, and the intertwining of the psychological with the physical. Throughout high school, David Cronenberg had an extreme interest in organic science and biology, but he was also interested in literature from an early age and would write and publish short, eerie stories. That's what I saw them described as. <laughs> and he eventually graduated from University of Toronto with a literature degree. So something interesting I found was all of his films, I shouldn't say all of his films, but many of his films, especially these body horror ones, follow a progression of a movement from the social world to the inner life. So in his early films, Shivers and Rab Rabid, we see scientists modify human bodies, which results in the... I'm going to restart this one over. So we see that his films follow a progression of a movement from the social world to the inner life. His early films, such as Shivers and Rabid, we see scientists modifying human bodies, which results in the breakdown of social order. In his middle period, which includes films such as Scanners, The Broad, and Videodrome, we see that chaos is wrought by scientists, and it becomes more personal than it being a breakdown of society. And then in his later works, The Fly and Dead Ringers, we see the scientist himself is altered by his experiment. So I think it's interesting how over time um, he's just kind of changed the way in which the actions of these scientists have their consequences um, because that seems to be a big theme in a lot of his movies is just the consequences of the choices that you make. Um, and he has said too that his films should not be viewed from the viewpoint of I'm sorry. He has said that his films should be viewed from the viewpoint of disease. I misread my notes there. And that the problems that we see are not to be overcome, but are instead agents of personal transformation, which I also think is a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, something that he described is how, for example, Brundlefly, he likened it to someone with a terminal disease and the fact that when somebody has a disease like this, they often try to find the benefits to what is happening to mm. them. Um, so I, I keep saying this, but I just, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it that these protagonists, they're not supposed to be trying to fight or change this inevitable transformation that's happening to them. They're just supposed to kind of accept the consequences and realize what they did to get themselves to that point. Mm -hmm. So something else about David Cronenberg, this is just kind of a 
one-off fact. Um, he has said that he believes that he could beat David Lynch in an arm wrestle if it came to it. <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting. The Battle of Davids. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, except unlike David Lynch, David Cronenberg actually allows us to try and understand his work. <laughs> yeah, thanks for nothing, David Lynch. Please tell us. <laughs> um, David Cronenberg Just has... Just your treasure. <laughs> David Cronenberg is an outspoken atheist and has said that he believes there isn't anything in this world that humans aren't meant to discover and understand. He has said before, too, that he sees technology as being an extension of the human body. Um, something mm. else is he passed on directing Top Gun to direct The Fly. Good choice, dude. Yes, very good choice. Um, and before I go on to his thoughts about the different themes in this film and just creating this film, is I found an interview in The Guardian from 2014 when David Cronenberg turned 70, and the interviewer asked him, how do you survive the horrors of your own imagination? And I really liked his response. He said, my imagination is not full of horrors at all. This is the misunderstanding of what my movies are. First of all, I think my movies are funny. Not everything in them is funny, but they are all full of humor. And second, it's not my imagination. Anybody looking at the news on the internet or in a newspaper, there's horror there every day. Compared with that, my imagination is a wonderful playground. So I don't feel my imagination is a place of horror at all. Cool. I can relate with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as Ian was talking about, um, one of the themes we see in this movie, probably the biggest theme, is the theme of death, decay, deterioration, and the loss of your own humanity. Um we see Seth turning into Brundlefly as a consequence of his own rash decisions. Um, and so Cronenberg has said that the general idea of aging disease and the inevitability of deteriorating are big themes of this film. And something to note is that this film did come out in 1986, which was at the height of AIDS cases across America. So many people at the time of release of this film believe that the fly, this disease he has, um, was an allegory for AIDS and what it is like to have AIDS. Mm -hmm. Um, but Cronenberg has refuted this and said that is not what this film is about, but he does feel that the universal fear of AIDS at the time of release was a key element to the film's success and that he himself can see how that has been an interpretation of his film. Um, something else interesting is that Cronenberg said that as he is now older, he finds the film much more disturbing because he can actually relate to the themes that this film is bringing up. Okay. One, one other thing that David Cronenberg had to say about this is that at the root, this story is a tale of two lovers about 
two lovers and one of them contracts a deadly disease and the other one is forced to watch and ultimately help the sick one in their own suffering. Um, And he has said that this would never have been made as a straight drama, that because it is a science fiction horror movie, that these more serious and dramatic, realistic tones help the film stay guarded and not seem like it is too much of reality. Because yeah, if this were a film about two lovers and one of them was diagnosed with cancer and we were watching their chemotherapy journey and we eventually see them succumb to the disease in the end and their partner be the one to ultimately put them out of their suffering that would be a much more depressing film than this one is not to say that this one isn't a heavy and tragic film because the last scene when we see Seth just completely stripped of any humanity that was left, but he is still aware enough to know that he cannot go on surviving in the state he's in. It's truly tragic to see him beg Veronica to end his life and pull that shotgun barrel up to his own head. Yeah, it was pretty dark. Yeah. Something else that Cronenberg notes is that the scene where Seth puts all the sugar in his coffee and is super hyperactive can be viewed as a parallel for someone using cocaine because that was a very, very common drug in the 80s. Um, And one of the last things that I have about Cronenberg on this film is that it was very important to him that Seth was able to articulate what is happening to him. So in the 1958 version of the film, by the end of it, the scientist is completely mute. Um, Yeah, he's just, he's mute. He can't convey what he's going through. And Cronenberg felt like that would not work for this film. So what he did was he read a bunch of books written from the first-hand perspective of someone who has a terminal disease and said it was enlightening to hear in their own words what was happening to them. So he drew on these books and reading people telling their own stories and own experiences um, to try and allow the audience to experience this disease, this transformation along with Seth rather than just simply watching him go through this. Um, And my last thing on that is that Cronenberg really felt that as the final creature we see, when Seth is completely gone, he still needed some sort of human element to it for emotion. So that is why that final creature we see has these big exaggerated eyes. And so that's its last way of communicating with Veronica is through its eyes, um, even though there's no humanity left in it. Hmm. I say it because I don't really know what it is at the end of that movie. I'm pretty sure it is just a brundlefly. A brundlefly? <laughs> I don't think there's other any other way to define it. Yeah. Um Um, One thing I read too, and I'll just wrap it up on this before we talk about our own opinions, 
is that while yes, the tragedy of this story is seeing a man lose his humanity, the other tragedy that we can find in this is the fact that he tries to take Veronica with him, that he feels entitled to take her with him through this. Um, yeah, this was a it was kind of a downer. Yeah, it's got a lot of heavy themes in this movie. So, yeah, it's definitely a bit of a downer. Yeah, but that's all I have on that. So, what did you think of this movie, Ian? I was torn. Um, I really liked the acting, the writing, the themes and ideas of it. Um, I felt like there was something missing. I couldn't tell you what. Um, But all in all, I mean, if I had to give it a rating... I'd probably give it a solid 8 out of 10. Um, it hit many, many marks that I look for. Uh, it had a, a quirky, charismatic, nerdy leading character played by Jeff Goldblum. That guy's always a treat. Um, Gina Davis is a fantastic actress, and she did a great job in her role. I found that the worst character, at least in my opinion, for the, the film was Ronnie's ex-boyfriend what was his name staffus 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 with a th okay so yeah i i thought he was the worst i mean he was just this basically like a self-righteous yuppie and i just wasn't about that it was interesting to see the way his character kind of changed in the end and how all the characters sort of changed positions and and how they appear because i thought that was one of the things that the film did very well is it shows that People aren't just these one-dimensional characters. Like, there were things about Stathis that I didn't like. Like, the fact that he was just super possessive of Ronnie. And, you know, he went into her apartment. He said he was going to keep the key there. Like, he was always trying to find these ways to to maintain some sort of control over her. And that was pretty shitty. But he also had a redeeming quality later on. Where despite his disfigurement from Brundlefly disintegrating his hand and his and ripping his foot off with vomit that disintegrated that too, you know, he still found the strength to stand up and use his stumps to activate this shotgun to shoot out the wires that were making it so that Ronnie's character was gonna get combined with the Brundlefly. You know, he did have those redeeming qualities. But I think all in all, if I had to pick one, I would say that Ronnie was probably my favorite character from the film. She embodied a lot of great traits of humanity. You know, she was resilient and she stood up for herself, but she was also able to be vulnerable. And I think that that's just a testament to the writing and the acting. So good on you, everyone involved. You got my seal of approval, some random person. Hooray. Madeline, what do you think? Um... So, I don't like any of these characters. Um, Stathis, kind of like you said, he's controlling, he's possessive, but we do see in the end he kind of has his ego and dignity knocked down a peg by becoming physically deformed um, at Seth's hands. I did not like the character of Seth at all throughout this movie, Um, He was arrogant, egotistical, which I get was the point, but in my eyes, he really did not have 
any redeeming features. Um, you know, we see more than once that he uses tele his transportation as a way to get with women. Um, we see that with both himself or with both Veronica and Tawny. I don't think Veronica is a bad character. I just did not like that her entire character revolved around these two men. And that was really my biggest um, complaint with this movie is the fact that we, we learn Veronica's a journalist, but that's it. We don't learn anything about what she wants for herself or what she likes. We just see her life revolving around these two shitty men. And David Cronenberg did actually note that he realizes it isn't realistic that Veronica would only have two people in her life as a support system. But he did feel that the love triangle was an important element to the story. I just... I don't know. I I wish they would have done more with her character um, because yeah. she does have all the makings of a great, strong female protagonist. It just falls a little short that more than anything, she is there as a love interest. So that's okay. where the movie kind of lost me a bit. Um, I thought it was well done, though, overall. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts you want to discuss on the themes we see in this film? Um, anything like that? Or do you have any more thoughts before I wrap up with my personal rating and um, who my favorite character was? We ended up having a lot more information than I anticipated on this one. So if we don't have much discussion, that's no, honestly, me. there's there's a lot to go over with this film. Nowhere near as many things as could continually be discussed with Eraserhead. But there there's still a lot that you can break down here. And it's got a lot of influences and there's a, a lot of interesting stuff that went into not only writing the script, but producing the film that could really do with shedding some light on. Uh, but for the purposes of what we got here, I've covered pretty much everything that I need to for now. I don't know, Ian, what are your thoughts on how Veronica is treated as a character? I know you said she's your favorite overall, but I just still feel like she's... Her treatment is really lacking, and it bothers me. Yeah, I mean, I can't disagree with that. As uh, She's treated as just a plot device, essentially, in a lot of ways. But I think it was Gina Davis's acting that really brought the character a little bit more humanity. Um, because you can see that she's conflicted in what to do, whether she wants to continue having this relationship with Brundle or, you know, face this daunting prospect of seeking shelter with the only other person in the film that it's been established that she has a relationship with her ex-boyfriend, this creepy, nasty guy. Who's also uh, her boss. Yeah, well, I mean, it's implied that he's one of her bosses because she's a, a journalist. But yeah, I don't think and he's it was an necessarily editor. Confirmed that she that he was her only source of work. True. It was implied, at least to me, that she had other organizations that she would do journalism and like write for. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, for what it is at the time that it was made, I understand 
why sadly her character was relegated to just this side character that's more of a plot device than anything. But I also think that it shows a lot of just powerlessness in the situation where, you know, she stumbled into this relationship with Brundle as something that she thought was just going to be, you know, I'm getting my scoop, whatever. And for whatever reason, she found herself attracted to Seth Brundle, starting a relationship with him and then watching his decline. I mean, that's something that I find would be especially relatable for pretty much anybody. You know, if you get in a relationship, it's a friendship or it's a romantic relationship. And this person that you thought you had an idea of who they are, they end up just either totally turning out to be a different thing all along, or if they may have been, you know, something good to begin with, they slowly evolve due to their circumstances. And so I think that's where like she really shines in the the film is just showing that she's handling these unforeseen changes and this very bleak prospect of what Brundle's going to turn into and she's kind of sticking with it. It kind of shows tenacity as a character. And in the end, she makes the right call. You know, she tries to get this presumably hideous fly human baby removed uh, for her own safety and her own sanity. She wants to make that choice. She wants to do the thing that's right for her. And although these men in her life are trying to stop her initially, you know, she decides that she's going to continue doing that. And I think that shows strength of character, especially in the mid eighties when women were portrayed in films as much more meek and, underwhelming yeah i was actually very surprised that they would have her character go ahead and try to get an abortion at Mm -hmm. least i do believe that she still went through with it after we see this movie end Mm -hmm. um i did read that there was a bunch of proposed extensions onto the ending um showing either her and stathis together showing her abort the baby showing her go through with the pregnancy and giving birth to a butterfly um i'm not making that up either what yes that's creepy um but they decided that the film was most effective if they just ended it where they did and i think they made the right call on that and I, I see what you're saying, Ian. You do make some good points about our character. And something else that I've found to be a theme throughout this film is isolation. Um, I think that's a really big theme in this. And we see how Seth has to isolate himself from the rest of society um, because of this brundle fly he's become. But through his own isolation, we kind of see Veronica become isolated herself as well. And again, like I said, it seems like the only other person in her life is her ex. Um, But I think, yeah, I just, I think through Brundle's own condition, we see that eventually cause Veronica to be isolated herself too. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. So if you had to pick, and you have to pick. Okay. <laughs> what do you think would be your favorite character from this film? Um, The baboon. The baboon? Not the one that gets turned inside out, but the one that makes it through successfully. Oh, yeah. The actual baboon that was actually turned yes. inside out. Um, If I have to pick a human, I will go with Veronica. 
All right. Yeah. I, I, I would also give this movie a rating of an eight. Um, my last fun fact is that this film actually spawned a stage opera directed by Cronenberg in 2008. What? Yep. In France. He, I don't know how much he contributed to the writing, but he directed an operatic adaptation of this film. Wow. I don't even know where to start with that one. If there's anyone out there who has seen this operatic rendition of The Fly, please get in contact with us. Uh, I want to hear about that because that's interesting. I would love to know um, how that's adapted to the stage. I mean, yeah, I was talking about Hamilton a couple weeks ago. I'm a huge musical theater theater fan. Um, so I'm curious as to how that works. I'll try to get a bootleg of it. <laughs> Well, that pretty much wraps up everything that I've got for The Fly. Madeline, do you have anything else you want to wrap up with? No. Um, I mean, I have a lot more thoughts on the themes of this film, but eh, All right. we can save that conversation for a later time. Well, that does it for this one then. Uh catch us next time uh the next film that we're going to be doing is actually one that should be widely available to most folks can i announce this one i'm so excited about it yes Yay. madeline please drum roll what's our next film the witch from 2015 it is an a24 film it is our most contemporary film by far yet mm -hmm. um and you can find it on netflix so i am very, very excited for that one. I love anything involving Salem, Massachusetts history or themes. Um, I'm super excited for it. So thank you for listening. If you have movie suggestions for us, you can send them to creepshowspodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at creepshowspod. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash creepshowspodcast. And lastly, but not least, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps us out. And we hope you join us next week. Stay safe out there. Bye. Bye.